kindly turn to your copies of God's Word, Jonah chapter 4. We'll read the whole of Jonah chapter 4 in your hearing. It's a short chapter, 11 verses. I think since it begins with the conjunction but, which is a conjunction of negation, it would be good to read the last verse of chapter 3, verse 8. I'm sorry, it won't be on the projector. Jonah 3, 8, 3, 10 rather, won't be there, but I could start there then. Uh, chapter 4 will be on the slide. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Thus far, the reading of God's word, may it please him to add his blessing to it. Let's pray. 
O Lord, you teach us in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. You teach us, O Lord, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And yes, Lord, we agree. Yes, O Lord, we testify even as you do. We need your word more than our necessary bread. Without your word, we are lost. We would not know our left from our right. Your word is sweet. Your word, O Lord, to us is as honey. Lord, we thank you that because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, in our minds, we growingly continue to say, Oh, how we love your law. It is our meditation all day long. Oh, Lord Jesus, stand among us in your reason hour. May it be, O oh Lord, that this hour of worship, as we meditate, upon your word in its preaching would be an hour that pleases you. We kindly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jonah chapter 4, God's gracious rebuke to his pouting prophet is a theme that we see. The theme of the largeness of God's heart is a continuous thing that is beautifully demonstrated in this book. The largeness of the heart of God, the theme of his generosity and mercy and grace and kindness is a theme that is magnified in this book whether it is in his dealings with the pagan sailors, whether it is in his dealings with Nineveh, whether it is in his dealings with Jonah, we see this theme of the largeness of the heart of God. And this theme of the largeness of God's heart is especially clear when we contrast it with the dark background of the narrowness of the heart of Jonah. In this chapter, chapter 4, we are helped to see the reaction of Jonah to the merciful disposition of God. Verse 1 to 5. We have a record of Jonah's reaction to the response of God to the repentance of Nineveh. One would have expected that Jonah, having come from rebellious Israel, where there was deaf ears being turned continuously to the preaching of God's word, one would have expected that Jonah coming from a background where prophet after prophet, Elijah, Elisha, and Jonah were preaching to God's people and God's people were continuously turning a deaf ear to such preaching, one would have thought 
one would have expected that Jonah would have exceedingly rejoiced at the response of Nineveh in how they glorified God by their repentance when they had only one sermon. One should have thought that Jonah would have rejoiced. One should have thought that Jonah would have rejoiced not just because the people of Nineveh responded so positively to one sermon, but as a prophet who perhaps had faced rejection of sermons, that here were a people who accepted his message. He should have rejoiced as a prophet and said, I thank God. I am among a people who accept the word of God. One should have thought that Jonah would have rejoiced at the fact that the glory of God was being exalted in the repentance of Nineveh, and that this would have caused Jonah much joy. But that was not the response of Jonah. Jonah does not send out a prayer letter saying, hey, this is what's happening in this environment. Jonah does not call out the media of his day to come and see the mighty revival. Jonah does not send a letter to the denominational headquarters saying, so many souls have turned to the Lord in salvation. Please send more money so that we can complete the work as would occasionally be seen in prayer letters that come from such environments. Instead, Jonah reacts in a very opposite way. And the essence of Jonah's reaction is anger, class. That was the reaction of Jonah. The reaction of Jonah to the massive Merciful dispensation, the merciful disposition of God to the Ninevites. Displeasure and vexation that degenerated into anger was essentially the reaction of Jonah to God's merciful response the repentance of Nineveh. Verse 1, we read, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He waxed hot. And the Lord confirms this, contrary to what some commentators would say, those who try to explain away the anger of Jonah out of embarrassment, how can Coming from chapter 2 and chapter 3, how can he make our work of going through chapter 4, preaching through chapter 4, so difficult? We just said he is repented. We just said he has been recommissioned. We just said that his response was obedient. Now, do we say he is sinning? And so a number of commentators will try and explain away the fact that 
John 4.1 says he was displeased and exceedingly angry. And they would say Jonah was concerned. Jonah was perplexed at the glory of God. But no, God's testimony on the matter in Jonah 4.4 4 confirms what we see in Jonah 4.1. That indeed Jonah was angry because the question God asks is not do you do well to be concerned? Or do you do well to be perplexed? The question is, do you do well to be angry? And how is Jonah's anger expressed? His anger is expressed in two ways. A prayer that is sulky, sulky, petulant, peevish, Childish prayer is what we see in chapter 4, verse 2. We thank God it is prayer. We thank God that he takes his complaints to God. But it is a sulky, thumb-sucking, whiny prayer. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tashish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Then in the same section, we see not just sulkiness in his prayer, we see a perverted hope. Verse 3, Jonah says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then in verse 5, it's as if he goes to the age of Nineveh to try and see, almost to wait for them to backslide so that God's wrath actually comes upon them. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. So he is at the edge of the city trying to see what will happen to this city. Will they backslide? And if they backslide, will they be hit and hit hard? That was the carnal desire that Jonah had. A perverted hope, a hope to escape from reality, and a peevish desire for the judgment of others. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, see how weak we are in our creatureliness. Behold, what miserable creatures we are when we are left to the predominating areas of remaining sin, we know that God has saved us. And by God's grace, we are assured of eternal life if we are in Christ. Yet we know that while we are justified and God sees us 
clothed in the robe of the righteousness of Christ, we do know unto our shame and embarrassment that there is remaining sin that we continue to deal with, that we continue to mortify sin, that which we call sanctification, as we look forward to that day when we will be in the land of no more sin. Brothers and sisters, behold, how miserable a beloved brother or sister in the Lord will be if he or, or, or she is left to the predominating area of remaining sin. In Jonah there was one major area of unmortified sin in this dear saint. And this is the scene of Hebrew ethnocentric and tribal outlook to life. When left to this remaining sin of ethnic thinking, tribalism, tribal bigotry, when left to this remaining sin, Jonah produced such terrible fruit in his heart and his life. What a warning. Such a warning to us. Here is a saved man. Here is a prophet. And yet when he comes under the predominating influence of unmortified sin, he does terrible things. And we can think about others in the Bible who demonstrated such terrible conduct when they were left to the force of remaining sin. As Jonah, so is Abraham, the father of faith in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 almost divides into two equal halves. The first half, we see the father of faith leaving the Ur of the Chaldeans and proceeding in faith towards the promised land. Then there was drought in the land. And scripture says, our beloved father Abraham went down to Egypt. And in Egypt, we see something of Abraham that scares us. For his wife, Sarah, almost falls into sin as Pharaoh takes him, thinking that he is, she is not the wife of Abraham. Abraham told him, say, you are my sister so that no harm comes upon you. Later on, we would see it again, repeated. Think about David as Jonah. So was David. David. David becomes one whom we see as a gourmet for fine, beautiful female flesh 
he accumulated wives contrary to God's word. In fact, when he takes Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, he already has six wives. And how much great misery came out of it. Adultery, duplicity, murder, the death of a child, and so much more. How can it be that a man preserved for three days in the belly of the great fish, a man preserved by God, and such are the beautiful things would do what we see Jonah is doing here. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that God and Him alone is to be trusted for our salvation, for our preservation as saints. As Reformed brethren, many times we talk about the perseverance of saints as an essential, non-reducible, irreducible minimum for all who are in Christ. And we say yes. As we talk about the perseverance of the saints, I want us to magnify in our minds, in our hearts, the perseverance of the Savior. The perseverance of our Savior. Behold the mercy and the patience of God in dealing with the sins of his children. If as a parent, a child spoke to you in the manner in which Jonah spoke to God, Oh Lord, is this not what I said? When I was yet in my country, this is why I made haste. And he goes on, and the parent who is not self-controlled might find themselves dealing with a child who has a cracked cheek because they swung their hand towards that child. God does not destroy children. God is merciful, extremely persevering in his dealing with the sins of his redeemed children. It is amazing. When we say in the hymn, Amazing Grace, your grace taught my heart to fear, this is the kind of thing we are talking about. The grace of God scares us, but that grace our fears also relieves. Think about the mercy of God in the sense that he does not answer the selfish prayer of Jonah. Oh God, just kill me. God doesn't answer that prayer. God doesn't answer a lot of our prayers, childish prayers that we make 
as a way of escaping false hopes. He doesn't answer them. See the mercy of God in his wise denials of our selfish prayers. Oh God, I pray that I do not fail this exam. And he allows you to fail. Because if he allows you to pass, he will perpetuate that laziness with which you went into that exam. You refused to study. And he mercifully allows you to know his care in that way. Oh Lord, and we could go on many, many prayers that we pray. Oh Lord, help me to leave this church. And he says, no, stay here. Stay here, my daughter. Stay here, my son. There is truth there. It is sharp truth, but it is nevertheless true. See the mercy of God in how he put such grace in Jonah's heart. So much grace is put in the heart of Jonah that we have the book of Jonah. Would you be willing to honestly write such things about yourself? About sins that you have committed? This is God's grace to you and to me. He puts honesty about sin in the heart of Jonah so that he testifies in a way that magnifies the grace of God. Dear saint, I plead with you, do not tolerate any unmortified sin. Tribalism would be one of those sins that we would consider not big. We are quick to shrink into our tribal cocoons so often in this country to a point that in some circles during certain periods, like the period of election, you do not even feel a bump as you are crossing from the world into the church. There is no difference. But see how tribalism and and ethnocentric thinking results in such ugly sin. Dear preachers of the gospel and those who have positions of influence with regards to opening the scriptures before people such as I do, please, please I beg you, see that the usefulness of a man see that a man's usefulness is not to be measured 
by their immediate success standards. Because such standards of immediate success in ministry may bear no correlation to the condition, the true condition of the heart. If we only had chapter 2 and Jonah ended in chapter 3 and not had chapter 4, we would have assumed that because there is success in Nineveh, because there is repentance in Nineveh, the ministry of Jonah and the heart of Jonah was okay. But chapter 4 shows us that this was not the case. O oh, reformed brethren, you who have been so privileged to ascend to such a high height of privilege, of success with regards to the word of God. Please do not assume that because you're experiencing external success, because you're gifted, doesn't mean all is well. Lord tells us that on that great day, there are many who'd say we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. And yet the Lord would say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jonah preaches. And he preaches clearly. But shock on us, he seems to be preaching clearly while hoping there will be no success from his preaching. That is strange. It is as if Jonah has no heart for the people he is preaching to. Have we found ourselves in such places? We preach, but we never pray for the people we are preaching for. There is no fasting and prayer that accompanies our sermon. There is no concern demonstrated that shows, oh God, if you do not move in our midst, I could as better be speaking to our Lord. I look at the mirror of God's word with embarrassment, with a sense of wish that it was one of you and not myself who was preaching this this evening. When we come to church and we do not pray, Lord, may your word be effective. We can't remember the last time the name of our neighbor was in our lips as we prayed for their salvation. Are we any different? The name of your colleague at work has never visited your lips as you are found before God's throne of grace. Yes, you bring to them the gospel, but more or less you are not relying on the one who can truly change them. I say this, 
Again, do not judge the spiritual condition of a man by the outward success of his preaching. And this is comforting while at the same time convicting. This comforts the challenged while convicts the comfortable. It's a double-edged sword. So who are those who are to be comforted? Perhaps you're a preacher. Family worship. At home towards your husband. Maybe one who will one day be a church planter. Perhaps even watching and you're in a church planting situation. And you are faithfully laboring in God. And yet there is no external fruit. Dear brother, dear sister, the lack of fruit in your ministry is not necessarily a testament, a testimony on the fact that your character is bad or on the fact that you're preaching the wrong Keep preaching. The word of God teaches us that we plant, we water, but the increase is from God. Remain faithful in the preaching. Remain faithful in the prayer. Remain faithful in demonstrating by your deeds and by your words the truth. Do not quit. Do not just look around at others who are having a success in their preaching and say, there is something wrong with me. Not necessarily. On the other hand, be convicted. If you are a preacher, if you are one who presents the gospel, and yet you are unfaithful, and you are experiencing external fruit, your careless life is not set apart. It is not done away with the fact or by the fact that many are positively responding to the gospel you preach. Is there sanctifying grace in your character? This is important. Why does God risk, quote-unquote, and I say that reverently, his own honor by honestly listing the sins of his servants? Why does he allow us to know the sins of Jonah, of David, of Abraham, and others, of Peter, of Paul? The listing of the sins of the servants of God remind us, remind us a number of things. One of which is that salvation is not in men, but in Christ. The best of men are men at best. Our salvation is in Christ alone. In an age of celebrity preachers, we go around life behaving as if all we need to do is touch the hems of their garments. We need to remember that salvation is in Christ alone. At the end of chapter 3, as we read it, we are almost calling John a saint. Jonah, 
But at the end of chapter 4, we realize that our hope must be in nothing else other than the greater than Jonah who has already come, Jesus Christ. And we thank God that the Holy Spirit reports the imperfections of his servants. In whom have you put your trust? Reach us somewhere? Your church? This church? Is that where you've put your trust? Such works would be a stench in God's nostril. The only acceptable work of righteousness must be that we believe that we have faith in, that we cling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no salvation to be found in the best of men, but only to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having seen the reaction of Jonah, let's now look at the rebuke, the gracious rebuke of God to the pouting, angry prophet. One of the things that should strike us again and again in Jonah is the mercy of God. The mercy of God seen in various ways. The recipients of the mercy and the fact that God takes initiative to graciously restore his prophet again here. And here what God is doing is ensuring that the heart of Jonah is where the feet of Jonah are. You remember we saw that part of his restoration and response was that his feet were where God wanted his feet now to be. He was no longer in Tarshish. He was now in Nineveh. He obeyed God. His feet were obedient. But now here we see God ensuring that his heart was also where his feet were. And he uses various means to graciously rebuke and restore his prophet in this particular area. One is the word of God. And in verse 4, we see God pressing a question to the mind of the prophet. Is your anger justly kindled? He asks Jonah in, in verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? God uses this interrogation. God presses this question into the conscience of the prophet. Where reason and rational thought at times seem to be weak, questions can be powerful. They can harness a person and bring them back to a place of calmness while they've been acting wildly or in ways that look or could be described as insane. Questions such as, what is the root of this jealousy? 
why is it that as a sister, I'm envious of other sisters. I look across the church hall and I'm envious in the gathered worship of God's people. And yet there is envy in my heart. Why? Questions are helpful. Apart from the word of God, there is a strange and sovereign acts, symbolic acts of God. And we see this in verse 6 to 11. God prepared some kind of broad lift plant that would deliver Jonah from his physical discomfort. The discomfort of the burning eastern sun. We are told in verse 6. And now the Lord God appointed. We would see that language again in verse 7. God appointed. And we see it again in verse 8. God appointed. In verse 6, God appoints a plant. A plant that provides shade to his servant, the prophet Jonah. Obviously, Jonah is not deserving of this kindness from God. But God, nevertheless, shows compassion to his physical discomfort. And now Jonah is very pleased. And then in verse 7, God also prepared a worm. And gave it perhaps strong appetite, a prodigious appetite. It ate the plant, the plant withered. And Jonah is exceedingly sad. God also prepared an oppressive east wind. And the sun beat upon the face of Jonah so that he fainted. And now he doesn't even pray, he just wishes he were dead. There in verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. It's as if Jonah felt like he had. Opened the door of an oven that was very hot. And the hot air from the oven continuously beat upon his face. And he repeats that prayer, just wishing he died. Jonah is brought to a place of initially external comfort, and now he's brought to a place of internal and external discomfort. And then God invites Jonah to a time of interaction on this, and God's interpretation of these things is found in verse 9 to 11. God asks Jonah, are you justified in becoming attached to something that was bringing you temporal comfort? He asks in verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do. 
Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And then in verse 10, a crucial assertion is made. The Lord tells Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then the question, the closing question of this book of Jonah is asked, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So Jonah is invited to get down from his high horse to reason with God. God is saying, hey, you're showing compassion to a plant, a plant that indeed comforted you from the heart. Think of your relationship to that plant. Are you its creator? No, you did not create it. And you did not sustain it. You are neither its creator nor its sustainer. And here you are, you have pegged your whole personality to this plant that you did not create nor sustain. Simply because it brought you delight. And God asks John, behold, behold, John, I am the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He father tells Jonah, those people in Nineveh, I created them. And in Nineveh, there are 120,000 infants that have not yet come to the age of moral discretion. You show compassion to a plant that is a grass of the field that is here today and yet with us, has no eternal soul. But you do not want God to show compassion to the people who have immortal souls. And one imagines that nothing more needed to be said because Jonah repented. Jonah was brought to a place where he saw the ugliness of his narrowness and the largeness of the heart of God towards sinful creatures. Now let's think about a number of applications. Please, dear brothers and sisters, see the compassion of God. Behold, behold the compassion of God toward sinners, toward Nineveh, toward Jonah. See that compassion. Is it a compassion that marks my heart? Is it a compassion that marks your heart as I've already asked before? Do you pray for the preaching of the gospel? Do you preach the gospel? 
Are you concerned that with every passing second, people are dying and going to hell? Behold the compassion of God towards sinners. There is much joy before the angels of heaven at the repentance. Behold the compassion of God towards sinners as we sit here and we know we are sinners saved by grace. We see his compassion. Behold, secondly, the wickedness of a heart that is not as compassionate as the heart of God towards sinners. It is a grotesque and ugly heart that has no compassion for sinners. What's your response towards sinners? Do they just infuriate you? Do you want to be born ages? A son of thunder falling down lightning upon them? Do you pray for the salvation of your children? I'm not talking about the problem child. I'm talking about a child who is perhaps even excelling in class, but you know he is not, she is not a believer. See the ugliness of not having concern. See the ugliness of having no concern for their immortal, non-dying souls. As I've already asked, do you pray for the preaching of the gospel in this place? Do you pray for the extension of the gospel in our country? Do you participate in the sharing, in the preaching of the gospel? Or are you, are you like the elder brother or the prodigal son? Please thirdly see how God is determined to ensure his children delight in his will. God is committed to ensure that you will delight in the things that he delights in. You will obey not just externally, but from the heart. And he will not spare whatever is needed for you to obey from the heart. Behold, how God is determined to ensure that as his child, your feet are not just in Nineveh preaching, but your heart is where God, God's heart is. That the thing that God rejoices in, you rejoice. The thing that causes him to grieve, you grieve about. God is determined, dear saint, to achieve that in us. He will use his word. 
he will use sovereign circumstantial situations whether it means bringing comfort over you he will do that and if it means inflicting you with the sharpest of pain he will do that the apostle says in 2 corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The apostle concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God is determined to ensure his children will delight in his way. And we thank him that in this account he starts with comfort. And many times he does that for many of us. I pray that the Lord will enable us to have hearts that beat for the things that his heart beat for. That you'd not just be here on Sunday afternoon, come cool and collected on the outside, and yet on the inside you're crying out, let my people go. Because you'd rather be elsewhere than in the courts of God. God is, ensure, is going to ensure we do his will. He will expose sin. He will refuse to answer prayers. And whatever else is needed. And behold, the providence of God, it is specific, it is determined. He deals with us precisely. A passerby would have passed by there and looked at the plant and said, oh, beautiful plant. Looks like there is an agronomist around here. And the following day, they would have passed by the place and said, careless farmer, why didn't they spray the plant? And there would be a place at times to, to think that way. But in all these circumstances, God is dealing. These providential circumstances, open door, closed door, is dealing with the heart of Jonah. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us, dear brethren, as we look at Jonah, to see the largeness of the heart of God. And to see how we must depend on him every single day. We never, ever, ever outgrow our need for the grace of God. May we have the compassion of God that is exigited, that is exposed in the 
compassion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, him who cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? As a hen gathers a brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. Let us see the sovereignty of God. When that sparrow falls, let us remember Matthew 10, 29 to 31, not a single sparrow falls from the sky, as Pastor Dominic taught in the morning, apart from the sovereign providence of God. I would like to conclude for this time by saying, let's have a heart for the gospel to go out to those people who are our enemies, those who persecute us, those who mistreat us. Let's not just be infuriated towards them. Let's present the gospel to them. Let's have the heart of God towards Nineveh in our dealings with our enemies. A spouse, a child, a parent, the brethren in the church, oh, we are trigger happy in these times with exiting from churches. Let's be careful. Let's be careful not to do so. Let's be careful that at times seemingly spiritual things we do are before God, a noisy God. John, I pray, but that prayer is not a sweet-smelling aroma. It's complaint. And some of the highest-looking spiritual activities, exhortation, prayer, and such things can be done by a person who is complaining, who is sulky. And on the outside, it looks like prayer, legit prayer, but God sees it. He knows now. Your character needs to change. We thank the Lord for having enabled us to spend this time in the book of Jonah, may I kindly request that we pray and then sing a closing hymn, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, without you we can do nothing. That our journey through the book of Jonah has come this far is only by your grace. We thank you. May it be, O Lord, that we are not like the one who sees their image in the mirror and then quickly forgets. Please, O oh Lord, show that we help us to demonstrate that we are true believers, that we have that true faith by our actions coming out of what we have had you teach us. O oh Lord, now bless us with the blessings of Yahweh upon his covenant people. Cause us, O oh Lord, to live for you every moment of our lives. May it be that all that we are and all that we have and all that we long to be would be only that which honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.